the title of our sermon is The Grace Found in God's Discipline. The Grace Found in God's Discipline. Scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 12, in our series, The Promise of the Messianic Kingdom. This is the Word of God. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he had brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if there were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And the child became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, he spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servant, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. 
Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was still alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that the child is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because the Lord loved him. Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed upon David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws, iron picks, iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. I can see to you, beloved, that this last part doesn't seem to go with the rest of the chapter. Like all of a sudden, David's in battle and putting a crown on his head. But over here, Nathan was talking to him. But I hopefully God will tie it all together for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. What a powerful portion of scripture. It makes us shake, Lord. It makes us tremble. It makes us angry. At times when we first read this, Lord, angry at David, angry at what he did, disgusted with the fact such a great man, such a hero of ours, could do such a terrible, vile, and horrible thing. There's much to learn here, Lord. Much to learn. And about that much, O Lord, one of the greatest lessons is the grace of God. Even for a wayward, awful sinner like David, who is a child, we pray that you would teach us these things, draw them close to our hearts, for we need them. In Christ's name and for his sake. Amen and amen. You may be seated, beloved. In chapter 11, our last chapter that we read, David seemed to be in control. He was the prime decision maker, if you remember. He was dominating the action from the palace. He was making all sorts of decisions that caused incredible pain to many people. And David seemed to be in control until he crashed into God's righteousness at the end of the chapter. And that crash was recorded for us in 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, the second part. David acting, committing adultery, lying, and murder. The Bible reads in the last chapter, the last verse, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that kind of set the mood for this chapter, did it not? The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This verse was ominous because it made it clear that the holy God would not allow sin to continue in the heart of his chosen king. David is hiding his sin for over a year. He's gotten away with it, quote unquote. Nobody knows, or so he thinks. But the chapter ends with God knows, God sees, and God's not happy. Amen? 
And that's a good lesson for you and I to consider right off the bat. That everything you do, God knows and God sees. Amen? And that you can hide your life. You can hide sin from other people. You can live a life of hiding sin. Pretending to be something that you're not. But God knows and God sees. And at times God is displeased depending on what it is we're doing. As expected then, God and his word now dominate the action in this chapter. David is no longer in control. God is speaking now. After the flagrant crimes that David commits, one would expect God's wrath to fall entirely upon David in this chapter. I would even say most people want to see the wrath of God utterly wipe David off the face of the earth. We are offended by David. We are offended by him. And we expect that God would act and he would act swiftly and even without mercy. We expect punishment and judgment. And these things are certainly here. But what we do not expect and what we find is also unmerited grace for such a wicked sinner. And it leaves us stunned. Stunned because we say, how can God forgive such a man? This is the central theme for our sermon today. As Christians, when we sin against God, we can expect the chastisement of the Lord. There will be consequences. And often these consequences are dire. So as your pastor and as a man who loves you, and as a man who read through this and spoke this message even to my own self, I would say to you, don't sin, beloved, against God. Walk in obedience. Love the Lord. Amen? Beloved, do not sin against God. It's not worth it. The consequences are often dire. Amen? You don't want to go this path. And, and the consequences can be a lifetime of consequences. Don't do it. Don't do it. But if you happen to find yourself there, remember this. God loves his children too much to allow them to live continuously in sin. This is the teaching recorded for us throughout the entirety of Scripture, that if you're a child of God and you step off the path and you sin against His holiness, God will come after you. God will bring you home, but He will do so with the rod. With the rod. He will come after you. He will bring you home, but He will do so with the rod. There will be chastisement. You've read this verse before in Hebrews 12, chapter 6, the first part. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And so God's discipline in one, in one sense is heavy, hurtful, it causes pain. It is a rod. But in another sense it's wonderful because we know that we are his children and he loves us. He wouldn't be correcting us if we weren't his children. You don't correct other people's children. You correct your own. Amen. And so the fact that God would correct you and bring the rod to your life shows that you're a child of God and shows that you belong to him and that he loves you and that he'd rather you hobble into heaven than go walking and leaping and straight into hell. Praise God for that truth. Amen. And so that's what's at stake here. David, at the end of this chapter, will be hobbling. And for the next eight chapters, David is going to reap consequences like there's no one's business. It's, it's going to be a mess for David. And if David could have seen, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten years into the future, what this decision, this one decision followed by awful other decisions would have cost him, David would have said, never. Never. So be careful, beloved. God loves his people. And God will go after him. And God will discipline the one he loves. This discipline of God reminds us always that he loves us. 
His discipline is made to bring us back to him, to restore us to the joy of our salvation. And his discipline, listen, is never meant to push us away from him. Amen? God's discipline is never meant to push us away from him. God's discipline is meant to bring us back into the land of grace. He reminds us that even in our darkest hours, even for new and terrible sins that we might commit, the grace of Jesus Christ's atonement still exists. And that even for these sins, Christ has died. What incredible grace. Amen? What incredible grace. In other words, it's never over. While there is a God in heaven who loves his children, it's never over for you. You can sin, you can reap horrible consequences, you can, you can go through the mill of God's discipline and, and feel the excruciating pain, but you can be restored, you can be brought back because God loves his children. Amen? And that's good news for you and me. Amen? That God doesn't just say, you know what, that's, that's too much. That's the straw that broke the camel's back with you. I'm done with you. Praise God that we never hear his, these words. Amen? That's a good thing. So God does not crush an erring child, no matter how much we might deserve it. God brings us back into holy communion with him. And that is a good thing. So let us look at the scriptures. Look at verse 1. And we're just going to look at that first part, that first part of that verse. Where we learn that God's grace is always ready to come after a wayward child. Listen to these words. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now those words might seem harmless and the beginning of the story, but in those words, are, are, are they're incredibly jam-packed with God's grace. Who is the initiator of grace? God is. Who is the one sending? God is. David is not coming to God. David is hiding sin. David is hoping he can get away with sin. David is in a dark place. And it is God that initiates grace. God who sends Nathan. Praise God for that. Amen. God sends his word Nathan is representative of God's word. God sends his word to, J- to David through Nathan. God sends Nathan. It's time for us to get this right. It's time for me to expose your sin. It's time for me to bring it up. It's time for you to go through the consequences. Because at the end of it all, David, you are my child and I love you and I will correct you. God is a God of grace. And it is God that goes after us. We never go after him. Praise God for that truth. Isn't it wonderful? More beautiful words have never been spoken. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. We learn that God is not a passive onlooker. No, God is a God of action. God sends Nathan to David. He sends him words of discipline and surprisingly words of love and grace. God is intent on restoring a wayward son. God is intent to bring that prodigal son home. And we praise God for this truth. God will not allow his servant to remain comfortable in sin, but will expose their sin lest they revel in it. Even if doing so, even if exposing that sin causes incredible pain, God loves us too much not to cause us that pain. We learn that a Christian might temporarily, like David, temporarily succeed in unfaithfulness. David was very successful for a brief period of time at being really, really wicked. Amen? And we learn that a Christian might be temporarily succeed in unfaithfulness. But God's grace will track that Christian down. After all, Jesus is the good shepherd that loves his sheep. And he promises never to lose one of them. Including the one that has done terrible things like David has done. 
So we're not condoning sin. We're not saying sin's okay. We're not saying God just forgives sins. No, there are consequences. But what we're saying is that God loves his people. And because he is a God of love, he'll discipline us and he'll bring us back to himself. And praise God for that truth. Amen. So if you're a child of God, if you've come to God through Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, if you've submitted your life to his authority, if you have begged God for forgiveness of sins through Jesus, and you have accepted the fact that Jesus died for you so that his righteousness can be yours, if you have come truly and genuinely to God, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit will never lose you. Amen. He will never lose you, no matter how hard you try. No matter what you do, God will never lose you. And for, beloved, that is good news for us today. Amen? Because we're all going to need this message at one point or another in our lives. We learn that Christians can sin, but God never loses us. It might be uncomfortable, this restoration process. It might be excruciatingly painful to have our sin dragged up and exposed to the sun. But God will come for his own. We find incredible and comfort in the beginning words. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Because ask yourself, what was the purpose of sending Nathan? To confront him with his sin. To show him the pain that it caused. To show him the pain that he would endure because of his sin. But at the end to say, you shall not die. And at the end of the chapter, we see David sitting there with a crown on his head and a precious jewel. And we're going, what, what happened? God is a God of grace. Amen? God is a God of grace. We might succeed in sinning, but God will come after us. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Imagine if God's grace did not search for us. Imagine if God's grace didn't pursue us. Imagine if it was up to us to come back after we've done such terrible things. What if God abandoned us when we succeeded in sinning so terribly? What if God says, that's enough, I'm done with you? What would happen to each and every one of us? We'd all be lost. Amen? We'd all be lost. But not here. God doesn't say those words, I'm done with you. And not ever. God has never said those words to one of his children. God sent Nathan in his word, just like he sends his words through various means in your life when you're not walking rightly. And each one of you can say, man, I've gone through that place where God has sent his word after me, I've, where I've been hiding and running from God, and no matter where I turn and no matter where I hide, there's God's word waiting for me. Turn on the radio and there's a sermon I need to hear. Turn, turn on the radio there's a song I need to hear. Walk around, there's a Christian I haven't seen in 20 years waiting for me. <laughs> and you're like, really, Lord, Right? Turn on the TV and somebody might say something. Just Everywhere I go, God sends his word after me. Praise God for that. So all that being said, let us turn our attention to the second half of verse 1 all the way to the first half of verse 7 where God's grace is always wise. David has been hiding his sin. David has been living in the darkness. David has been giving himself parades in front of the people. Look what a godly man I am. The people have been fooled. The priestly class have been fooled. And the soldiers have been fooled. Everybody's been fooled. But God is not fooled. And God whispers to Nathan, this is what David did. And Nathan is shocked. And God sends him to David. But Nathan doesn't come and say, you wicked, horrible, terrible sinner. He doesn't start at that place because David's been hiding this place. And David's been hiding this sin. And so, in order to draw David out of the darkness, God then tells him a story. In which David can identify with, and David can see, 
And eventually David can judge, and then eventually the prophets can say, you are that main character in that story. And David can start seeing how horribly he's behaved. How wise is God's grace, amen? It opens our eyes, sometimes slowly through a story, sometimes immediately, however it might be, but it opens our eyes to what we've done. Nathan tells David about a case. After all, David is the supreme judge in the land. And by using this story, David's eyes are graciously open to the filthiness of his terrible sin. This is God's grace. It's wise. The story elements are essential for us to consider. There was a rich man, this man who had everything in overabundance. Unbeknownst to David, he is the rich man in the story. The story is about him. He doesn't see that at first, but he will. And this rich man, he has flocks of sheep. To him, sheep are a property and nothing else, a thing to use and, 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 to, and, and, to, and to exploit the sheep represent to, in the story all of David's wives and his concubines. David had multiple wives and multiple concubines in disobedience to God's word, but in practice to what was normal for the kings of that area to do. It was kind of a rite of passage. And because David had multiple wives and concubines, they became things that he used. He never loved one woman biblically. Does that make sense? And so for him, they were just things. And we see that in chapter 11 when he sees Bathsheba and he says, well, if I have all these things, why can't I have that one thing? And he takes something that does not belong to him. But The story tells us about a poor man. That man had very little. And obviously that man is Uriah, the Hittite. All that he had was one ewe lamb. But to him, this little lamb was a member of his family. It was not property, but something dear and loved. The Bible tells us it was like a daughter to him. There are people that feel that way about their pets, right? Their pets are members of the family. I don't feel that way about my pet, but maybe you do. There are people who truly love their pets, right? They become almost like people to them. They're not, and we should never go that far, but there are people who feel that way. And to this poor man, this ewe lamb was like a daughter. He fed it from his, he fed it his bread. He let it drink from his cup, something I would never do. Right? And he put it close to his bosom. And the Bible says it was like a daughter to him. He loved that ewe lamb. But that ewe lamb represents the one wife that Uriah had, Bathsheba. And so already we ask ourselves, who truly is the rich man? Is it the poor man? Or is it the rich man? Who's really the rich man? To the rich man, women are what? Things to use. Because he has so much, they're just things. But Uriah loved his wife. Because that's really what it's representing. She was dear to him. She was precious to him. And we look back at chapter 11, we say that's even worse now. It wasn't that Uriah was not a loved wife. She was, she was dear and beloved to her husband. He had the right relationship with one woman. In that, sense, in that extent, Uriah really is the rich man because he's living in obedience to God's word and experienced the fullness of marriage. There is a guest also that comes into our story and he's hungry and this guest must be fed. The culture determines that we should feed our guest, right? Hospitality. And in the story, the guest is, uh, the guest represents sexual lust and desire the need to fulfill um, your sexual need. And, 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 and I know that these are things we normally don't talk about, but we should. 
these needs arise in each and every one of us at one point or another, correct? And with David, when he was leering at a woman that wasn't his, that need arose, that desire arose. And instead of going and taking one of his own lambs, I've already sinned against God. I shouldn't be watching this, but I'm not going to continue to sin. I'm going to go and take one of my wives and have legitimate relationships. He decided to take something that did not belong to him. The guess is that, that desire. And we learn that the rich man does not want to take any of his own sheep, but would instead take the poor man's lamb and feed it, kill it. That's what David did to Bathsheba in a certain way. Kill it and feed it to his guest. On hearing the story and unaware that Nathan was really talking about him, David's rage explodes. He cannot fathom the unfairness of the rich man's deed. He said, the man shows no pity. And he has no idea that he's talking about himself. He is so angry. And I think often when we're hiding sin, we so loathe the fact that we're not right with God. We're so angry at ourselves for trying to pretend to be something we're not. We're overjudgmental with others. Amen. We judge others more harshly because we're really angry at ourselves. And that's what was going on with David. Beloved, living a hypocritical, hypocritical life can often cause rage and resentment. David sentences the rich man to death. Surely this man shall die. But beloved, this punishment did not fit the crime. The Old Testament only required the replacement of stolen property on a four-to-one basis, which David says later he will, he will give fourfold for one. And we're not happy with this just fourfold. We, we like the idea of death for David's sin because we know what the story is really talking about. But if we take the elements of the story, even though this ewe lamb was loved, it was just still a lamb. It was just still an animal. You see, in our story, the crime that's committed is lesser than the crime that David actually commits. Why? Because in the story, the crime is committed against a pet, it's still an animal. But David committed his crimes against what? People. And that's greater in God's eyes. And just the thought that people are greater than pets. And that should be our thought here too. The Old Testament required that four to one. And so that, that would have been right for David to say. And he does say it. That's fine. But David sentences a man for stealing to death. Why? Because he's angry at himself. When we learn... That when we harbor unrepentant sins, we become very judgmental of the lesser sins of others. Nathan's story relates a lesser crime than David's actions in chapter 11. And it is as if David, David's hidden sin is so loathsome to him, and he's so angry at himself for what he's done, but not willing to ask God for forgiveness, that he wants to punish others for his actions. This is the peril of unrepentant and unconfessed sin. It makes us judgmental and legalistic towards other people. It forces us to live a duplicitous lifestyle, a hypocritical lifestyle, in which we are offended by the lesser sins of others. The Bible warns us about this very hypocrisy in Matthew 7, verses 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. By the way, that's the proper interpretation to this passage. Many people will say, you can't judge me, you can't judge me. Take the log out of your own eye before you start, what, 
judging me. That's not what this portion of Scripture is telling us. What the Scripture is telling us, it's not telling us we can never judge anybody. It's telling me that if I'm walking in obedience to God and I see you falling off the rails, I have every right as a Christian to examine the fruit that's coming from your life and come to you because I love you and correct you. That's what brothers are supposed to do. What I don't have the right to to do is to come and correct you when I'm committing the exact same thing or even worse. That makes me a hypocrite. Does that make sense, beloved? So if I'm not committing those sins and I see you committing, I have every right to come and say, your thing, the thing you're doing is wrong and I love you too much to go down that way because you're a brother and you're dear to me. That's Christian brotherly love. The Bible's not saying we can't judge anything. It's just saying don't judge wrongly. Don't be filled with worse sins trying to fix the sin of others. Take the log out of your own eye before I try to take the speck, lesser crime that you committed out of your eye. That makes sense, beloved? Although death then was unwarranted, excuse me, for the rich man in the story, death was completely deserved for David's crimes. David had committed adultery, murder, and both of these carry the death penalty because unlike the killing of a sheep, the killing of a man and the dishonor of a woman are crimes against those that are created in the image of God. Amen? Unlike a sheep, men and women are created what? In the image of God. And David had sinned against his fellow brothers and sisters. And wrongly calling for the death of the rich man, David rightly applies the death penalty to himself. David must pay with his life. It's only right for what he has done. And the casual reader is going to say, yeah, David's going to get it. David should get it. We're offended if we're going to be honest with what David has done. So Nathan, instead of calling David a filthy sinner, gets David to see the gravity of his sins, the gravity of his actions through, through, through this parable. What wisdom is found in God and his grace. Nathan points the finger at the end when David starts judging people wrongly, having committed the worst sins himself. David, uh, Nathan points the finger and says, you are that man. You've done worse than the rich man in our parable. You are that man. And David's heart drops and sinks. He has been discovered. God knows. Amen. Let me say that again. God knows. And David comes face to face with the omniscient God. With this, David stands before God as a dead man with no hope of atoning for his sin and having pronounced the death penalty upon himself. Surely the man that has done this thing shall surely die. He just condemned himself to death as the judge of the land. Beloved, it wasn't like David sinned against God without knowing what he was doing. David as the king, as the ultimate judge in the land, as a man who had walked with God, knew what the word of God said. And he purposely and uncaringly and unabashedly sinned against God. What do we hear in the word of God in Romans 1.32 about this? Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die. David knew. At that moment when the finger was pointed and when he was told that he was the man, when it all came to light, he knew, I deserve to die. I'm a dead man. In verses 7, the last part to verse 12, then God's grace now confronts sin. God's grace, in order to be grace, has to confront your sin. has to show you what you've spurned and has to show you what you've done so that you can feel the weight of it, so that you can run and ask for forgiveness. That's what God's grace does. It shows you how filthy you can be. And so it does in this story. God's discipline is scary. It causes us to shudder. 
The holy God hates sin and he hates it most vehemently when it is found in the lives of the redeemed. I hope that you can say, well, that's true. That must be right. If God hates sin, he must hate it worse than us. Those who say that we're the children of God. Because the unbeliever does not have God the Holy Spirit guiding them, and you do. The unbeliever does not have God's word abiding in them, but you do. The unbeliever hasn't been forgiven, but you have been. And so when we sin against God in this way, then God hates it even more. Because we're to be the children of God. Nathan introduces his thought with the hefty words, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Normally, those words are terror-inspiring. These words bring a foreboding to the soul. They tell us that we have sinned. And because we have sinned, now God must act if he's going to be holy. You see how terrifying those words are? Imagine the prophet looking at you and saying, look, God knows what you've done. And thus says the Lord. You you don't want him to finish that sentence. You're like, I don't want to hear it. I know what's coming. It's not going to be good. But God must judge his people. God must demand that his people walk in obedience. Or as 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. God must start with his people. God must require holiness from those that claim the new birth. Beloved, we got God the Holy Spirit living inside of us, taking residences. And so when we go off the tracks like David did, that, that horribly off the tracks like David did, we, get, we make God a partaker of our sins. That's a horrible sin. So judgment has to begin at home. So in verse 7 and 8, the chastisement of the Lord begins, but it begins with a retelling of God's past grace to David. Have you ever noticed how many times when the people of Israel are a man of God's sin, where God always starts with, I did this for you, and I did that, and God starts going back to how faithful he had been. Have you ever noticed how many times that happens? It's the formula for God. Whenever we sin, we do so because we have forgotten or we cast away from our mind God's past grace and his mercy. Whenever we sin, it's because of ungratefulness. And God reminds us, look at all that I've done for you and look how ungrateful you've been. That's that's the thought there, amen? Look at all that I've done and look what you've done with all that I've given you. Beloved, for sin to appear as foul as it has to be, it must stand in comparison to God's past overwhelming grace. I love this quote. I found it. It says, Treachery may only appear hideous when viewed against the fidelity it has despised. You don't see how treacherous you've been until you see how faithful God has been. And you see, look at how faithful God has been and look what I've done with that faithfulness. And then you feel the impact of your sin. So that's why God starts with you. Remember what I've done for you. Because you need to see how good he's been so you can really realize how wicked you have acted What had God done for David? Well, God recounts it. I anointed you to be king. I took you from nothing. You were a shepherd boy, the least in your father's house. Your own father had no respect for you. I took you from all that and I anointed you to be king. I delivered you from Saul. I gave you the kingdom. I gave you Saul's house. I gave you Saul's wives. I gave you Israel. And if that had been not enough, God said, I would have given you more. If you needed more, I would have given you more. How good God is with us, amen? How good God is with us. So there was no need to do what David had done. 
Like all sin, it was a rebellion against God and God's goodness. Never justified your sin by saying, I needed to do that, or I was deprived, or I just, I felt all alone, or whatever it might be. No, you choose to sin against God and his goodness. David was not deprived. David indeed was the rich man. He had everything you could ever need or want, and more than you could ever need and want. When we desire to sin or go after sin, we must admit that there is no reason for us to sin. I'm going to say that again. There's never a reason to sin. You can never sin. I sinned, but I had to. Sin is always a choice, always ungratefulness towards God. I hope that you can say amen to that. God has given us everything we need. If you doubt that, look at Ephesians chapter 1, where he says, God has given us everything we need so that we can approach him, so that we can love them. He's given us salvation. He's taken away our sins. He's given us the Holy Spirit. God has given us absolutely everything we need to walk a victorious Christian life. We choose to spurn all that when we sin. We choose to be ungrateful. Because sinning is ungratefulness. It is typical of God to remind the offender of past grace. God shows us what we have scorned. So I'm going to ask you, what about you and me, beloved? I'm going to ask you to, by God the Holy Spirit, to consider what has God done for you? Hasn't he been good? Amen? Hasn't he been good to you? The fact that you're sitting here as a child of God, if you are a child of God, God has done everything. If he only did that, that would be enough. But he goes beyond that, does he not? Shouldn't we not be a people who walk in total humility and gratefulness? Should there, should there not be an overwhelming sense of gratitude for this great salvation in our hearts? Should not gratitude keep us from wandering into the forest of sin? Of course it should. And I want you to consider a man who was grateful to God. And I want you to see how that gratefulness caused him not to sin in the exact same area that David sinned. Here is a man who one could have said he was deprived from, from the physical perspective. He was a slave. He had gone from being a free man to a slave. And he had risen in that slave, in, in that slave standing in the house to become the head of all slaves, but still a slave. And he uses gratefulness to fend off the very same sin that David committed. Consider Joseph, beloved. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said to him, Lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master, he said, Because of me, excuse me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. Look at how good God has been to me, saying. Look at what God has done. He has changed the heart of this Potiphar and has made me his most beloved slave. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except one thing, you, because you are his wife. Now listen to this. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin not against my master, but sin against what? God. That was a man that was grateful. And he was a slave. And he said, look what God has done. From the lowest slave to the highest slave, I'm almost equal to the master of the house in every which way. God has done that. How dare I even consider to sin against God? Gratefulness hemmed him in. Gratefulness protected him. Gratefulness kept him from sinning against God. Amen? 
And David had way more than this man had, and he threw it all away. I'm going to say something. I've said it before. I hope you take, take it to heart. A grateful heart will not sin against God. Say that to yourself as I say it one more time. A grateful heart will not sin against God. Every time you've sinned against God is because you have been ungrateful. I've been ungrateful. So in verse 9, after God determines and goes through the gratefulness, God's demonstrate how evil sin truly is. After I have been so good, God says, Why? Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Sin despises the word of God. It takes God's word and it tramples it underfoot. When you sin against God, you're saying that what's in the Bible is not true, it's not important, or we can disregard it. Amen? So if the Bible says, don't do this, and you do it, you're saying that that's not important. The word of God is not important. You're trampling the word of God. You're despising the word of God every time we sin. I hope that that resonates in your heart. Listen to this. We preach the impotence of God's word when we discard it in favor for sin. We're saying God's word is impotent. It has no power. It has no meaning. We can live without it. Because if I couldn't, then I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. That's what God is saying to David. You despise my word. And by the way, by despising my word, who am I despising? The God of the word, right? Notice you despise my word to do what is evil in God's sight. Sin is evil before the eyes of him who sees all. The absolutely holy God. I think we purposely forget that God sees all. That he's omniscient. Because if we have that thought of our over our hearts and our minds guarding us, we would say, I can't do this. God sees. But we purposely say, God is not seeing now. Or God's taking a vacation now. I can do this now. God won't know. No one will know. We forget that God sees all. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Sin not only offends God, but it also destroys those around us. I said it last week, didn't I? And I'm going to say it again. That morning, David didn't get up with the thought, you know what, let me commit adultery. And after that, you know what, let me lie about it. And you know what, that if he doesn't conform, then I'm just going to kill him. And after I kill him, I'm going to lie and I'm pretend to be a good guy. That wasn't the plan when David got up that morning. Amen? But sin destroys us and everybody around us. And so it did with David. So verse 10 to 12, God starts announcing the consequences of purposely sinning against God. Sin will always make you pay a steeper price than you intended to pay. And David's going to pay. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Imagine God saying those words to you. Is that scary? The sword, violence, will never leave your house. From now on, violence will always be found in your home. Those are horrible words to hear, aren't they? consequences that David must take, but horrible words to hear. Because David used violence against Uriah, violence would now be part of his household. David would see terrible things, violent things happen within his house, and he had had to live with the knowledge and the truth that he had started his house on this path of violence. When his son rapes his daughter, David had to look and say, well, I started this violence in my house. When that son kills that, the, the, the raping son, David has to live with the thought, well, that's where I started my house on. I started it on this path. When that son then arises and leads a civil war in which thousands upon thousands die, David has to say, well, you know what? That's on me too. Violence will never leave your house. That alone makes us shudder, right? That thought alone makes us say, that one night stand was not worth it. 
Sin is never worth it. Beloved, say it with me. Sin is never worth it. You might not know what you're going to pay, but I guarantee you're going to pay a price deeper than you thought you were going to pay. Amen? And here we see it. If that was just it, that would be enough. But no, God continues. Because you have despised me. By discarding the word, you despise God. And I've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Someone in your own house. Evil will arise from your own house. We know who that is. Absalom. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, Absalom. And Absalom will lie with your wives in sight of the sun. What you did in darkness, I will do in what? Openly in public. And that's exactly Absalom rapes the concubines of David on the rooftop under a tent to show the people how much he hated his father. Because David took Uriah's wife, God would take David's wife. Someone within his own house would do to David what he had done to Uriah. Just as David did his deed in the darkness, God would do it publicly and in the sunlight. So violence in your house, your wives are going to experience that which you put Uriah's wife through. It's, it's terrible, beloved. And it all started because one man stayed home and was being spiritually lazy. The reality of all these judgments will be the theme of the following eight chapters of Scripture. Chapter 13 and 14 and 15, all the way, I think, to 20, 21. We're going to be just dealing with the consequences, with the fallout of this action, this sin that David has committed. So what do we learn, beloved? Well, we learn that God always sees the true nature of sin and he is appalled by it. If David the sinner has the moral capability of rage over Nathan's rich man, how much more must God hate sin than David? David was a flawed man and he was offended at the story, right? Oh, what this guy did is awful. This is terrible. Where with David? That is terrible. And God says, if David who was hiding sin could be outraged at sin, how much more... What right does the holy God have to be outraged over sin in the life of the believer? Amen? The perfect God has every right to say, what have you done? We see the gracious God that sends Nathan, yes, but he is also the holy God that despises sin and will hold each of us accountable like he holds David accountable. Grace does not mean it's cheap. Grace does not mean that God just says, it's okay, I understand. We're all messed up a little bit. No, David must pay. Verses 13 to 14, where we see God's grace offers no forgiveness. David says to Nathan, I have sinned. And Nathan says to David, you shall not die. But in verse 14, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. In other words, you've given occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. The child that's born in adultery shall die. The moral law of God calls for David's death. But our passage shows us that God forgives David and commutes his death sentence. You might say, how can God do such a thing? How can God do such a thing? How can David be allowed to live after these terrible... I've never done anything like David has done. That's, That's going beyond the pale. The answer to this question... It's the same for David and for us. The God that we serve is a God of grace. Beloved, do not be too quick to condemn David and say, I want his death, unless you're willing to say the same thing about yourself. 
How many times have you committed adultery, at least in your heart? How many times have you murdered, at least in your heart? Amen? Every one of those instances, you were worthy of what? Death. But God deals with his children in a different way. So be careful what you want for David, unless you're willing to drink from the cup that he's about to drink from. So the Bible tells us that David repents. He utters two words only in the original language. Translated here as, I have sinned against the Lord. But there's really only two words, sin and Lord, meaning I've sinned against God. And I think, when I read that, I think the apology is too small for the great crime that he has committed. What do you think? Don't you want to see David, you know, own up more, be more specific, say something more, beg at least for a while? Shouldn't God keep him flailing in the wind a little bit? Does David's apology seem like enough to you? I've sinned against the Lord. In the original language, only two words for such terrible sins. For all that David had done, could these words be sufficient? I think deep down, most people want to see David wallow in his guilt, plead and beg and agonize over maybe the possibility of one day, if he's contrite enough, to be forgiven. But God, praise God, it's not like we are. God is willing to forgive. Only the most, the best essential, the best example I can give you here is the following. If you sincerely come to the Lord, there are not many words that are required. Amen? Look at the simplicity of David's repentance. It's beautiful. With the words, I have sinned against the Lord, David takes full responsibility. He does not blame Shiv. He doesn't say, I have sinned against the Lord because the woman came out and you know. He doesn't blame her. I have sinned against the Lord. The problem here, says David, is me and no other person. I was ungrateful. I despised the word of God and the God of the word. David does not seek any loopholes. He does not give any pretext. Well, you know that I was having a bad week and I was just spiritually. No, no, no. I have sinned against God. And there's no excuse for it. In that extent, it's a beautiful prayer, isn't it? It's enough. I have sinned against God. Psalm 32, verse 5 says the following. David speaking, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. He did for what? But when he expressed his, I have sinned against the Lord, he's confessing it. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Confession brings what? Forgiveness. And beloved, God does not Excuse me, God does forgive him. Nathan assures David of that. You're forgiven when he says, rest assured, you will not die. What an incredible grace-filled sentence, right? Here stands David committing the worst possible sin he could possibly commit. Hiding, lying. He repents. He says, I've sinned against God. God is still right in killing David. But God says what? You will not die. I have put your sin away from you. Wow. These are the same words you and I received at the cross. And these are the same words that you and I received throughout the longevity of our lives here on earth. I have put this, even this sin, I have put away from you. How good is God and how different he is than we are. 
So we learn much from this portion of scripture. First, we understand that to be a man of a man after God's own heart is not to be sinlessly perfect, but to be among other things completely submissive to the word of God even when it accuses us of sin. David didn't put pretext, he didn't fight, he said, the word find me out, God has exposed me, I own it, I did it, it's me, I'm the problem, God forgive me. Secondly, we learn that God himself is the one that puts away our sins. God says to David, you will not die, I have put away your sin. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. We can never lose the sense of marble when thinking about God's forgiveness. God's propensity for forgiveness should grasp our minds and stir our emotions. Have you done wickedness against God? I ask you honestly, have you ever acted wickedly against God? And you sit here as a forgiven Christian. Beloved, look at this God. Let your emotions be stirred by him and say, God, I don't deserve you. That's the point, isn't it? Thirdly, we learn that our forgiveness requires a substitute. And listen carefully to what I'm about to say here. The words of the prophet says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. God forgives the guilt of David's sins, but inflicts the consequences of sin upon the child. Be honest. Does it seem fair to you? Be honest. Does it seem right for you that the child should die? If anybody should die, it should be who? David? After all, what has this child done? It's not his fault. Would you agree with me on those statements? Does it not kind of hit you a little hard that the child should die? God's forgiveness was marvelous for David. David was forgiven, but it was also costly. The child would die. It is as if the child will die in David's place, and we we don't think it's fair. There was no doubt that David was the one under the sentence of death. David himself had judged the matter, I'm worthy of death. But God informs David that the child would die, not him. Beloved, I want you to see the price of sin. David's infant son here is kind of a type, a type of David's greater son, Jesus. Isn't it one of David's sons who wipes away all our sins? Isn't it one of David's sons who dies on the cross for us? Isn't one of David's sons the one that's substituted? It's not fair. It's not right. We are under the sentence of death. We should die. Christ did nothing. Amen? And here, in a foretaste, in a forelook, the son of David, not the son of David, but a son of David, bears his guilt, is substituted. So here is the great truth of forgiveness. Salvation requires a substitute. And I'm going to say it again. I've said it many times. Salvation is both free and costly. Free to you. It costs Christ everything. Amen? I don't like when preachers say salvation is free. Because they make it sound like a free, cheap grace. Salvation is not free. It's free to you. Amen? There's a difference. But there was a terrible price placed upon the Son of God so that you can freely walk with God. And here, the Son of David dies in this place. God inflicts the chi- afflicts the child. That's our next 
portion of Scripture, verses 15 through 19, where we talk about the grace of pain. The grace of pain. The child, as you know, is afflicted. David prays, and at the end of the situation, the child dies. There's a genuine sense in which we know the depravity of our own souls only by the pain that our sin causes. In other words, there are times where you won't know how bad your sin was and to experience the pain that it causes. Pain is a powerful teacher, isn't it? Pain is a powerful teacher. It is a bitter grace, but a grace that is necessary. Sometimes pain makes things clear to us. And David has to see this child wither away for seven days and die. David will never forget the lesson of how much his sin has cost him. Amen? And it's going to be a bitter lesson, but one that's necessary. So the Bible says, the Lord afflicted the child. And if I'm honest, when you first read those words, it also bothers me. That God would afflict a child that did nothing. Just doesn't sit right when you first read it. Do, do these words wound you as well? Do you read them and kind of protest in your heart? This is not what I expected God to do. This is not what I expected God to be like. In my head, God is fair. And we say, this is not fair. Be careful with that line of thinking. Because God is unfair, then he's unjust. And if it's unjust, he's unholy. And if he's unholy, he can't save you. One of our greatest sins, I think, is our propensity to try to limit the extent of God's sovereignty. I believe God can do this, but he better not do that. Wait a minute, who, who said what? God is God, not you. The God I serve would never. Careful with those statements. Amen? You are not the ultimate determiner of what God can and cannot do. Let me ask a simple question that will take this whole fairness thing out of the, out, out of the equation. Does God own everything and everyone? That's a good question. Well, does he, beloved? Does God own everything? Yes. Does God, by the virtue that he made everything, own everyone, yes or not? Yes, he does. So can God do anything he wants with that which he has created? That's sovereignty, isn't it? It's expressed to us in Psalms 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's. What belongs to the Lord? The entire earth. And the fullness of the earth belongs to God. The world belongs to God. And those who dwell therein belong to God. So God can do anything with his possession. Beloved, we expect death from David's crimes, but we're offended when the death falls upon the child. We scream that such a thing is unfair. I would agree with you. It's unfair that someone else should be substituted for the wrath that you and I have incurred. It is unfair that Christ would die on the tree for you and me. That's the point of this story, and that's the point of gospel. Do you see the gospel in this story? The child is substituted for David. There's a terrible cost for his sin. Sin is not just something that God winks at. Here it is, right there before your eyes. Look at the price of sin. It causes death. And it's placed upon the one who didn't commit death, and it's speaking to us of Jesus Christ. Look at the gospel. It's there. And if you want to say it's unfair here, then say to God, it's unfair that I'm a child of God. I should be going to hell. That's the point. Until we stay in that place when we realize how much it costs God to save us, we will never be grateful for the gift.
as far as we should be grateful for it. David throws himself then into supplication. The child is sick. The Lord had told him he was going to die. But David prays anyway. He, he even worries the elders. David lies on the cold floor for seven days and nights. Refusing to eat. Refusing to rest. Refusing everything. They try to get him up. David refuses. The sorrow that comes from David is intense. The guttural cries to God alarm those around him. They even believe at the end that he might be suicidal. Because David is so overcome with grief. Begging, God, please. Oh God, if you're going to kill somebody. And I don't know that this is what he prayed. But I'm assuming as a father that this is what he would pray. God, if you're going to kill somebody for this sin. Me, I'm the one that did it. This child did nothing, God. Please, God. Oh, God, you're a God of grace and mercy. And I know you can do whatever you want with your creation, but God, would you show me even this grace? Would you allow the child to live? Take my life instead. That would be my prayer. I don't know about you. For seven days, God had him on the floor. For seven days, David wasn't eating. He was fasting. He was begging God because David needed to see the extent of his sin. Beloved, if you don't want to be on the floor for seven days, if you don't want to be in abject pain, stay away from sinning against God. Amen? This is not a pretty picture. But David is there and he's praying. David knew two things that his elders did not know. First, he knew God's propensity to relent in dealing grace, even when undeserved. He even says so. I thought perhaps God might, since he's so gracious. God is so gracious, he might even this time forgive even this. He doesn't have to, but I thought he might. Doesn't David know a lot about God at this point, now that he's been restored? He reasoned that perhaps this would be one of those times. So he prayed before the Holy God. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And beloved, whenever there's sin, you and I should pray fervently that God would act in kindness, even though our sins deserve nothing else but God's scorn or God's wrath. We should pray. Amen? Perhaps. Amen? He will go above and beyond the grace of just forgiving us and even remove some of the consequences from us. Secondly, David understood God's absolute right to deny his request. So he knew that God has a propensity to be gracious above even that grace that brings him back, perhaps even saving the child. But he knew that God had every right to do what he was doing. He didn't believe that because he was praying he was going to get what he wanted. He was asking. And if God said no, then that was God's will and so be it. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't get up and say this isn't right. He accepts God's will. We need to be willing to accept God's will. Even when the answers to our prayers are what? No. But, but God, please. No. David received a no. How do we know that the child dies? David understood God's absolute right to deny his request. God is sovereign and as such he must act according to what he knows to be right. It was right for David to experience loss so that he would never do such a thing again. It was important for David to see the price of sin. It was important for Israel to realize that only God is the perfect king. And that was all accomplished in the death of this child. So God afflicts the child and the child dies. Verse 20 to 23, God's grace then grants faith to David. 
You know the story. Our last portion ends with the child's death. and David's men are afraid to tell him, but God's spirit teaches David to discern what has happened. David understands that the child is dead. He asks. They confirm it, his actions. Then at this point, further baffle his elders. And really, you and I, when we first read it, here's a man screaming and crying and begging God. As soon as he finds out the child's dead, he gets up. He goes, takes a shower, he anoints himself, he changes his clothes. He goes back into the same place he was screaming, praying, and asking God. He worships God. You're holy. You're worthy. You have done what is right. The sin was mine. I don't blame you. I blame myself. Thank you for your grace and forgiving me. Keep my child in your hands. I know you love him. I know he's with you. And one day I will see him again. Is that what, right? He comes out. I'm starving. He asks. They bring him food and starts eating. And the elders are sitting there going, what is going on here? We expected him to even be more devastated. You've seen it. When someone loses someone they love, how devastated they are. They expected him to even be more devastated, and David doesn't seem it. And so when pressed why, David answers, perhaps God would do the unthinkable and save the child. I thought maybe God would do it. However, God didn't spare the child, and David teaches us two great truths. Number one, no one can cheat nor overcome the grave. David says, Can I bring him back? I I don't have the power. If I could bring him back, I would. But God has spoken, and I must accept it. Everyone and everything must die at one point or another. Amen? Number two, David teaches us that there's a gathering of the believers to come. When David says, I shall go to him, I will die one day, but he will not return to me. He will not come back to the living. So David Adam. Full confidence that one day him and his child would be reunited in heaven. Now be careful that you don't apply this too broadly. Many people have used this verse in the verse in Matthew where Jesus said, Let the little children come to me for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To say all children that die, all of them go to heaven. That's not what scripture is teaching. David was a believer. His child, according to Colossians, children are sanctified by the faith of their parents. Amen. And when Jesus said, let the little children come to me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he was referring to the kingdom, to the kids who had just been pushed away by the disciples. Children of who? Believing parents who brought their children so that Jesus would pray over them. And the disciples pushed them away. Jesus said, no, no, let them, these little children, come to me. He was talking about children of believers. So here's our message. The children of believers are covered somehow, some way, I can't explain how, By their parents' faith. Praise God for that truth, isn't it? So that a a child of a believer dies, I can fully say, Jesus said, let the little children come to me, for there's the kingdom of heaven. And David said, I will go to him, meaning he's with the Lord, and I will be with him one day. Praise God for these truths, amen? But I would never say these things to an unbeliever. I don't know. I do know that the scripture speaks about the judgment of children, even infants in the Old Testament, quite a bit. In Noah's flood, when God says to David, go kill every man, woman, child, and sucking infant. Bring the judgment of God upon them. They have been judged before. I do know that, and that scares me. Another reason why we should walk fearfully with God, right? For our children's sake. But here David teaches us that we, when we lose our children, praise God, when we lose our infant children, we will see them again. We'll be reunited. What a wonderful news that is. Amen? And so now we go to verses 24 and 25 and we close with the overabundant grace of God. 
the Bible tells us that David had relations with his wife and she had another child. It's the first time that Bathsheba is referred to as David's wife. Up to now, she's been referred to as who? Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife. And David had a child with Uriah's wife. And the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, she has never been referred to as David's wife until this moment. Because now that it's all done and everything, he is married to her. David and Bathsheba now have a second son. And Bathsheba is finally referred to as David's wife. We are told that God loves the second child. We have to ask, on what basis does God love the second child? But strike the first. Both children had done nothing. They were both babies. One is love and one is stricken. And we say, how can God do such a thing? They haven't done anything. Both children had done nothing wrong or nothing right. Our passage teaches us the basis for God's choice was God's sovereignty. There are many people that hate the doctrine of election. There are many false teachers out there railing against what they call Calvinism and this and that. Let them It's found on every page of scripture. I am not a Calvinist. I follow Jesus Christ. Amen? And if Calvin agreed with what's found in scripture, then praise God, I walk with my brother Calvin. But I don't follow Calvin. Calvin did not die on the cross for me. Amen? Jesus Christ died for me. I hope you can say the same thing. Yes, we believe the doctrines of grace. Not because of Calvin, but because they're found on every page of Scripture. And here's one. You have one child who has done nothing. God afflicts and that child dies. And we have one child who has done nothing. And God says, I love that child. And we say, but but what's the difference? God's good pleasure. Amen? And, And you might say, that's unfair and I want more answers. And there is no answers for you. In Romans chapter 9... Paul says to the Jews who would be arguing against him when he says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated and the children before they were born so that the purpose of election might stand. God says about what? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And you might say to me, well that's not fair, says Paul. That What choice did Esau have? It's not fair. How could Esau fight against the fact that God didn't elect him? You might say that to me, says Paul. And here's the theological answer. It's none of your business, says Paul. He doesn't explain it to you. I love that. He just says, who are you, old man, to reply against God? Who do you think you are? Shall the thing formed say to him who formed him, why have you made me this way? You're just what? Pottery. Does God not have the right from the same lump to make one vessel for honor to display in the house and one vessel for dishonor, basically to be a latrine in the house? Can God not from the same lump of humanity make people that are for his glory and people that are for his scorn? Does he not have that right as the creator? What do we have to say? We don't like it, but it's true. Thank God for your mercy. And here we have a microcosm of that. One child is love, he has done nothing. And one child is afflicted, and he has done nothing. One child dies, and one child grows up to be the king. And what's the difference? God's electing, choosing love. Amen? And why are you sitting here? Because God has chosen you. And that should make you grateful. 
Amen? Not boastful, but what? Grateful. The first child dies, the second one lives. The first child dies, a picture of substitution and redemption through the son of David. The second child is chosen, loved, and commissioned. As a matter of fact, it's loved so much that God sends Nathan back to David. Last time Nathan was there, he had the word, the word of rebuke and rebuke and grace. But now he comes with the words of just love. Hey, God wanted me to let you know that he really, really loves this baby. He loves him so much, he's going to call him, he's going to give him a nickname, Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. You might call him Solomon, but in God's eyes, he's Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. So immediately God gives him a nickname, beloved of the Lord. Can you imagine? Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Be careful. By no means. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Does not mercy and compassion belong to God, beloved? Yes. Could he not give it to whoever he wants? Absolutely. People say that's not fair. I love Paul's answer to that. It's none of your business. It's what God is. Take it or leave it. Oh, walk with God or don't, but that's what God is. And you know really what's unfair? It's not unfair that God doesn't save everybody. It's unfair that God save any. That's unfair. Because to save one soul, Christ has to die on the cross, and that's unfair. So the people that should be complaining about the unfairness of God should be the believers. It's unfair. I didn't want to be a believer. I wanted to sin. I wanted to do these things. And you changed me. And you gave me a new heart. But now that we have the new heart, we would never complain. We're like, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for choosing me. But it's really unfair because we didn't want it. The unbeliever gets exactly what he wants, a life apart from God, so that he can do whatever he wants. That's not unfair. It's right. Let me ask you one last question. How many people does God have to save before he's fair? It's a good question to ask, right? How many people does God have to save? None. It would have been wholly fair if God said, you're all going to go to hell. I'm not sacrificing my son for you. You deserve what you're going to get. He doesn't deserve to die on the cross. All of you are going to, it would have been absolutely 100% fair. So how many people does God have to save before he's fair? None. The fact that he chooses to save one, two, ten, a thousand, a multitude that no one can count shows how gracious he is. Amen? Be careful how you think of God. Our passage teaches us that, that God's love and salvation belong to him. And finally, our passage in verse 26 to 31 teaches us the grace of victory. We do not expect the chapter to end with David with a crown on his head. That's not how the story started. We expect him to be in a different place, but not with a crown on his head. It was proper for the king to strike the finishing blows to his enemies. Joab understood that, so he calls David and says, you, you need to come. If the city falls under my leadership, people are going to be looking at me. It's talking about maybe perhaps I'm going to be the future king. I don't need that in my life. You need to come. David comes. David fights. And David wins the battle. And then at the end, there's a crown put upon David's head. He's forgiven. He will go through consequences, but he's forgiven. And we learn that God can and will return us to service and victory. Perhaps not at the levels of before. David's kingdom would never be the same. But always still, we will have service for his glory. 
God doesn't say you've messed up so much that I will never use you. I will never forgive you. Praise God for these truths. Amen. And so at last we see David sitting there with a crown weighing a talent of gold and a precious stone inside of it. And we're like, that's not where we expected the story to go. We really did it when we started this chapter. But that's where it ends. It ends with David at battle. How did our story begin? David was shirking his responsibilities, not going into battle. How did our story end? David is now fulfilling his responsibility, going into battle, and there's victory. There will be consequences, but this sin has been forgiven. So how do you think of David from this point on? The same way you should think about yourself. Be careful. There, but by the grace of God, go I. Amen? And I'm no one to throw a stone against David without first hurting myself. What is it? People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Right? And that idea that we have sinned against God and God's grace has forgiven us and we've gone through consequences. And I close with this. Be careful about your spiritual life. Don't become lazy. It comes at a cost. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We've gone long today, Lord, so we ask that you would be with us and guide us in all things. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray.